Welcome to this very special City Council Spectacular series within the Earth Hotel. I'm your hostess and far-gone operator, Jackie Cotillard. Normally, this is a weirdo music, art, and philosophy podcast with just a touch of local politics. But with a rather consequential city election coming up on August 24th, I wanted to take some time with a few of the candidates to help boost their platforms. In the interest of transparency, you could consider these interviews as endorsements by the Earth Hotel, not that that means much from this strange corner. The opinions I express here are my own, and those expressed by the candidates are their own. May they bear no responsibility for the rest of what we get up to on the regular show. Interested parties and critics alike may direct their words to us at theearthhotel at gmail.com. In this segment, I'm talking with Keith O. Williams, running for city council in District 6, which covers Smithfield, Five Points South, Mason City, Powderly, Titusville, Woodland Park, Arlington West End, Oakwood Place, and Weston Manor. I'd like to note that many of these areas are split between districts. For example, I think the southeast corner of Powderly is represented in this district, for what I'm sure are totally normal reasons, completely disconnected from racial redlining and other nefarious gerrymandering. I'll read Mr. Williams's platform from his entries in a questionnaire from VoteUSA.org. Why I am running for public office. I'm running because I'm tired of recycled politicians doing the same thing and expecting different results. For over 30 years, the communities of District 6 and all city neighborhoods have been neglected, overlooked, underserviced, and overwhelmed with blight. Our elected officials are rubber stamps to the corporations and the special interests and don't care about the people they're supposed to represent. It's good to have the tough conversations, but it's even better to have some action behind the talking. All I see is lip service. The talking without action at City Hall needs to stop. Goals if elected. Restore transparency to the people so they can have an active voice in local government. Bring power back into the hands of the people and the neighborhood associations. Address the cause of crime with a 10-point plan to address the issue at the source. This also includes sweeping reforms in the police department. Continue to work with environmental groups in creating a local Green New Deal to address environmental injustice and climate change. Advocate for developers to redevelop vacant properties for affordable homes, beautification, businesses, shops, entertainment ventures, and social services. This covers economic opportunities and neighborhood revitalization. Achievements if elected. Create new laws and strengthen existing laws, then petition the mayor to enforce these laws. Birmingham will become the first city in Alabama with a local Green New Deal. Birmingham will become a sanctuary city and a safe city for immigrants and all people residing in the city. Areas to concentrate on. Crime and its root, neighborhood revitalization, economic development and opportunities, our homeless neighbors, environmental social justice, transparency and accountability, and youth and senior citizens on entering public service. Create a district accountability council that will consist of all neighborhood officers. They will serve as my advisors to help implement plans and be a liaison between the councilor and city departments. Conduct listening tours for all neighborhoods to hear concerns, answer questions, and brainstorm ideas. This also includes having suggestion boxes throughout the district. Use the city council's special powers to investigate several city departments and boards agencies in order to address serious issues in the city. Work with local government and the grassroots organization to address crime at the source and promote sweeping police reform. Institute participatory budgeting so the people will have a say in how the city should spend the budget. And with that, here's my conversation with Keith O'Williams. I'm going to ask you a question that I asked uh, Alice Speak last night when I spoke with her. You taken any money from 
Alabama Power? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, what about uh, Over the Mountain Lawyers? I despise them. <laughs> and uh, what was the other one? Uh, any land developers or construction companies? Nope. Not, not even ship. Then, I, <laughs> then we can continue. So you're representing District 6, and I had a specific question on that district before uh, we get into what is most affecting people there. In 2013, the district line was slightly adjusted, including some of Five Point South and UAB campus and ceding some of the Glen Iris, Green Springs Highway area to District 3 in Glen Iris. From my first impression, the Five Points area and Glen Iris UAB campus has some pretty disparate political needs from the rest of the district, Smithfield and Titusville, etc. What do you think about that? I'm just finding that out a couple of days ago. And let's not forget the south side, you know, where uh, Railroad Park is. Uh, that's also part of District 6. And you're right. Those areas are considered to be the most privileged areas of District 6. It is only a small portion of that district that's predominantly white. The rest of it is predominantly Black and has been under service for over 30 years. Uh, those areas that was annexed into District 6 was a result of the 2010 census. Now, those lines are going to be redrawn again, probably sometime after the election. And there are three people that are part of that committee. So right now, with the people are running in different uh, districts in the city of Birmingham, the drawing of the lines is not going to be affected, you know, by this election. But in 2025, we'll probably see some changes. And what those changes are, I have no idea. So we have to sit back and see what happens. Right. I wanted to start with those particular needs that are being underserved. That's kind of the core of your platform. We definitely agree on people coming into office, playing a specific game out, not being responsive, and not being accountable to the basic needs of everyone in the city that are being underserved and the communities that have been left behind completely, if not blatantly lied to about how they would receive help and then didn't. So do you want to speak for a minute on what those needs are and what needs to change in order to get those moving forward? I know that's a big question. Absolutely. But I just want to go on record to say that how can you be accessible and accountable to the people when you are a slave to the corporations and the special interests that gave you money, which means that you are bound by their interests and not the interests of the people. And that's why districts like District 6 has been underfunded and underserviced. Among those things uh, is blight and dilapidation. It's so much here that it's almost equivalent to a third world country you know, where those who have served as counselor for this district often give us crumbs. And because of the people, their morale is pretty much shot to hell, they feel that they don't have a voice and that whoever is elected to that position is not amplifying that voice. So they pretty much are helpless in that situation. And that needs to change. District 6 needs a leader that would stand up to the powerful and that it would provide the people with a voice, a strong voice that would stand against the opposition while at the same time address their needs 
we need affordable housing. In most districts, particularly in the Tisville community, you have 63% of the people that live in Tittiesville that are not homeowners, they're renters. Studies have shown that a person who normally rents, you know, an establishment does not necessarily take as much pride in that property as, as if they own that property. Because when you own something, you spend money and time in such an investment that if something was to come up, they will protect that investment. So affordable housing is definitely needed here. That's number one. Number two, we need to be aggressive in cleaning up these communities, addressing the blight, the overgrown lots, the dilapidated homes, make use of the vacant properties that exist in District 6. And I also want to add, in the whole district, we only have two grocery stores. And these grocery stores are so very inadequate that people don't want to shop. And so they go to places like Homewood or Hoover or Vestavia. Meanwhile, Birmingham is losing out on revenue. So when we talk about bringing new sources you know, of revenue, then we have to make our communities attractive and safe for businesses to come in. And once that happens, then we can have businesses to come in. If you look at downtown with the companies like Regions, Ship, uh, things of that nature, they tend not to invest in people. They have a self-agenda bent on profits over people and that they will literally harm people just to gain a profit. And they tend to look for politicians that share that same agenda. But what happened is, is that you have a lot of politicians who, even those who are running now, they're talking the progressive grassroots talk. But if you look at their finances, if you look at their record, you discover that that's not the case. This president administration with the mayor and city council at its present form is nothing more than a bunch of liars and rubber stamps. They are slave to the corporations and the special interests so much that it clouds their judgment of the reason why they have been elected in the first place, to serve the interests of the people, to make sure that they are being heard and that they're being served in a way that people will feel safe, people will have opportunity to be productive in society, and most importantly, justice and equality should reign in all nine districts. But if you're taking money for corporations and you're doing their bidding, I say that it's impossible to do that. And that's what you got. A bunch of lying, rubber-stamped politicians who, in a lack of a better word, don't give a damn about us. In Birmingham, we are living in what is called a blind reality. Our elected officials are telling us one thing to make it appear that everything is okay and that they're doing a good job. But if you dig deeper, which I'm quite sure you have, you discover their true reality. And the true reality is that they're, they're catering to the special interests and the corporations, and they're doing a little bit to make it appear that they're doing something when really they are destroying the city of Birmingham. That's something that they would never tell. That, my friend, is a blind reality. But here's a twist to that. I also found out, too, that people are in a denied reality. 
Because no matter how many times I tell people the truth, they simply continue to believe the lie. For example, if I tell you a lie so much, eventually you're going to believe that lie, you know, to be true because I said it so much. And in my mind, if you're saying the same thing over and over again, even though it's a lie, in my mind, I'm going to believe it's the truth. And that's what's happening here in the city of Birmingham. And I can go on and on about that. But that's a conversation for another day. There's a concept from French philosophy in the late 60s called the spectacle, essentially that in the present conditions we live in, let's say, there's a, uh, a prevailing morality that comes down from establishment wealth. There is a philosophy and an ideology that comes down from that, not as though it comes down from a single source at the top and everyone believes it. It's more self-replicating than that. And it, spoilers, it's capitalism, but... The way we see it in the city, for example, is the complete lack of attendance by the city and by the mayor's office to deal with any of the pollution issues, the air pollution issues and the water pollution issues, especially in North and West Birmingham. The reason appears to be that a lot of the money that ends up funding their campaigns, a lot of the money that is the blood that they cite as flowing into Birmingham, the prosperity that they evoke in order to give themselves legitimacy. I'm going to bring you prosperity, and then we all win, but that's not the truth. It's very clear that, for example, those pollution issues aren't being attended to because a lot of the money that forms their base and forms their message comes from the polluters themselves and comes from people that are very invested in that. I'm going to go a step further than that. Yes. In 2018, when I attended the trial of Oliver Robinson. Boston Bingham, former attorney, Joe Gilbert, and the leading man at Drummond Company, David Roberson. They all had separate trials. And in the trial of Gilbert and Roberson, which I attended for three weeks, three to four weeks that they had the trial. Footnote, I'll just read a summary of that scandal from the FBI website. An Alabama legislator who was bribed by a corporation to represent the company's interests instead of his constituents is now serving prison time and the two men who paid him will be serving time as well. Former state representative Oliver Robinson Jr., 58, agreed to a community outreach contract with a law firm that represented Drummond Company Incorporated, a Birmingham, Alabama-based coal company. The contract paid Robinson $375,000 over two years. While the contract itself was not illegal, Drummond executive David Roberson and lawyer Joel Gilbert used it as a bribe to induce Robinson to take official action as a state legislator, promoting the interests of the company he was secretly representing, a violation of public corruption law. The Environmental Protection Agency had previously informed a Drummond-owned company of its potential responsibility for environmental pollution in North Birmingham, a liability that could cost the company tens of millions of dollars. So Drummond, along with its attorneys, started a public relations campaign to oppose the EPA's actions. The company and its representatives told local residents not to allow the EPA to test their soil and that their housing values would plummet if the EPA placed the community on its Superfund national priorities list. Part of the overall strategy was the outreach contract with Robinson to help the company get those messages out. In early February 2015, Robinson signed a letter secretly authorized by Gilbert in his official legislative capacity to the Alabama Environmental Management Commission against the EPA's actions. Later that month, Robinson signed the contract and received his first check from Gilbert's law firm for $14,000.
Four days later, he represented Drummond's position at an Alabama Environmental Management Commission public meeting where he claimed to be representing his constituents and did not disclose his financial relationship with the coal company or law firm. Robinson took other official acts on behalf of Drummond, including representing the company's position in meetings with the EPA, voting on a resolution written by Gilbert to oppose the EPA's efforts, and encouraging the state to narrow the list of possibly responsible parties who would have to fund the cleanup efforts. Robinson, who served in the state legislature from 1998 to 2016, pleaded guilty to conspiracy, bribery, and honest services wire fraud. In September 2018, he was sentenced to 33 months in prison. Gilbert and Roberson were both convicted of bribery, honest services wire fraud, conspiracy, and money laundering conspiracy charges. In October 2018, Gilbert was sentenced to five years, and Roberson was sentenced to 30 months. In addition to the community outreach campaign, Gilbert drafted a number of opposition letters signed by Alabama officials and sent to the EPA. As a result of those actions, the site status for inclusion on the national priorities list remains in limbo, which will effectively delay extra funding for cleanup efforts. Quote, this case is important because the bribery scheme had a real impact on the community. And additionally, we didn't just hold the elected official accountable, we also held the bribe payers accountable. End quote. From FBI Birmingham agent Hunt. One of those trials, it was announced that they told Counselor William Parker, who is over in District 4, which covers North Birmingham, they told him, that if you don't stop trying to fix the environmental issue in North Birmingham, we're going to make sure that you not get another turn. You know, politically, they was going to assassinate him because when his mother died and he took over as counselor, he was a champion for environmental justice, you know, and he wanted to see the complete annihilation of uh, pollution in North Birmingham. That was in 2014. Somehow, two years later, these folks have gotten their ear, these polluters have gotten their ear, and they told you, if you don't stop doing this work, we're going to make sure that you lose this election. From that point on, he has been silent about the whole situation. Now, this is something that I heard myself sitting in that courtroom, and I nearly had a heart attack. I couldn't believe what I heard. And I document it in my daily reports on Facebook Live, you know, some years ago that I reported that this has happened. And I want to bring that to your attention, you know, is because that you have a counselor that is doing absolutely nothing to rectify the situation. As a matter of fact, you have a concrete plant by the name of Sherman Industries that's going to be relocated in the same area. They're already dealing with enough pollution. It's almost like an explosion of an atomic bomb. By having that concrete plant you know, over there, it's just going to make things worse. For lack of a better word, he definitely needs to go. Or there won't be a North Burmese. It was to come to the pollution from which Councillor Parker and his associates have profited from. I want to point to Green New Deal for a second. Talked about that with Alice yesterday. And it's a theme that repeated a lot that there are many problems that Birmingham is facing, that the citizens of Birmingham are facing, that have been solved in other places. The problems have been clearly identified. The methodology is clear. We have the solutions in our hands. We need city councilors to act as arbiter of that process, to do what the public wants and to not run 
a playbook that they have predetermined with whomever they're talking to behind the scenes. And then I went today on your Facebook page to grab a link, your political candidate page, and I see right at the top, in case you want to know the role of the city council, advocate, legislate, appropriate, communicate. I guess my question is, as far as the Green New Deal goes, we reach this conclusion of these policies are going to create jobs. They're going to improve the material conditions of the city. They're going to create not just new jobs, but new types of jobs, new types of expertise, new industries, new experts, and new skilled workers where there weren't before, if, if training is included in those job plans. So do you want to talk about the specific goals of your local Green New Deal ideas? You want to talk on climate change for a minute, and then we'll move on to redevelopment and neighborhood revitalization? Gotcha. So this is going to be the biggest piece of legislation that the council has ever involved on in the city of Birmingham in history. And that those that are in leadership uh, that are progressive grassroots, we're going to make history. For far too long, we have ignored climate change as a hoax, as something delusional or whatever you want to call it. There are some politicians, a lot of politicians that had pocketed millions of dollars while at the same time we're destroying our planet and we're killing a lot of people doing. So when we decided, environmentalist organizations and grassroots communities, we decide that we're not going to wait on the government to do something. We decide to take matters into our own hands. And so when we talk about the Green New Deal, we're talking about a sweeping revolution of not only climate change, but we also would address environmental justice. For one thing, we will tackle North Birmingham, the Superfund site in which we will petition the federal government to make that area uh, place on the national priority list. That area will have access to millions of dollars of federal funds to clean up and revitalize. We will also push for sweeping zone changes to keep uh, high industrial plants away from residential areas. We will be working with the Jefferson County Department of Health, ADM, Alabama Department of Environmental Management, we will be getting under their skin because they did play a role in this North Birmingham scandal, which we'll talk about in another conversation. Also with that, we will institute a citywide recycling program that will keep a lot of the everyday products that are recyclable out of our landfills. And it's funny because one of my opponents said that he was interested in putting a transfer station a waste transfer station in the district. Footnote, a waste transfer station is just what it says on the 10. It's a facility where solid waste from a municipality is temporarily staged in the course of its eventual journey to the landfill or a waste to energy facility. These tend to be pretty controversial in the communities where they are built. And I said, I cannot support that. And here's why. Some time ago, I read an article on uh, National Public Radio you know, online, it was talking about uh, landfills. What happened was is that the stuff that we normally throw away that is recyclable, along with food waste, end up in our landfills. And after a while, those byproducts eventually would decompose because it's been there so long, you cover it with dirt, it just sits there without treatment. When those materials are decomposed, it gives off a greenhouse gas called methane which they said is worse than carbon dioxide or carbon monoxide. 
Those are one of many greenhouses that's causing disruption in the ozone layer. And it also caused global warming, according to the Environmental Protection Agency. In this article, it suggests that you create a processing plant to where you can harness this methane gas. It suggested that you can create an alternative fuel source. You can also convert it into electricity to the point that we would be dependent less and less on fossil fuels. You can create jobs with that. We need a training program to where we can train people who say, well, we lost our jobs in the fossil fuel industry. Well, we need to grab those individuals and train them to perform these green-related jobs and that we move from a steel city and we move to a technology city we can have a green city. And by doing that, we can cut down on gas emissions, which will greatly improve the air quality. And that those who have health problems would no longer suffer for those health problems. Our soil will be clean. There will be no more brownfields. New homes, new businesses, restaurants, grocery stores, whatever you can think of. We were very much interested in making uh, solar power more affordable and accessible to the people of the city of Birmingham to where we don't have to depend so much on Alabama power, which is, of course, is a monopoly in this area, and that they are exploiting people for profit. This Green New Deal will also have an environmental uh, justice council. This council will be responsible for developing environmental policy investigating environmental injustice and complaints of pollution. This should be an independent body separate from the city, like the Waterworks Board or the Board of Education, with little to no influence from the mayor or the city council in which they are free to operate as they see fit. So they would kind of be like the watchdogs of environmental issues. And I'm telling you, it's gonna be super exciting to live in a city where we can have clean air, you know, clean water, less dependence on fossil fuels. And it's gonna be hundreds of jobs, green jobs as a result of that. And this is not gonna be low paying jobs. These are gonna be high paying jobs. And guess what? We're going to bring that training to our schools, especially the high schools or even the middle schools. That would be part of the curriculum, along with other skills, life skills, so that when students graduate from high school, they would be not only college ready, but they will also be job ready. But let's face it, everybody does not want to go to college. Everybody feels that they're not college material. But if we provide some kind of job training in these high schools, especially when we're talking about having a green economy, these individuals, when they graduate, they'll have a job already waiting for them, making not only of a livable wage, but probably more, and that we can keep them here. The future generation of Birmingham depends on what we're doing. So I am very proud to be a part of the Birmingham Green New Deal. And I'm certainly am grateful for the activists and environmental groups that invited me to participate in this life-changing 
historical presentation. A couple of things jumped out to me. For one thing, I think 40% of African-Americans with asthma die from it. I found that out a couple of weeks ago. Are you familiar with the wet bulb weather effect? Um, no, I'm not. Essentially, when humidity gets high enough, even at temperatures as low as 82, 84 degrees, the air can't absorb any more moisture, and so sweating is basically inefficient. Otherwise, healthy people are spontaneously dying from high heat, high humidity, and often in cities because their body can't cool itself. So, And if you also factor in the pollution in small along with the heat and humidity, when the National Weather Service puts out air quality advisory, when the air quality is so poor that if you have underlying health conditions on the respiratory side, they recommend not to spend a long time outside because it's going to have catastrophic consequences. Um, so I kind of have some logistics of that, but then again, I'm not an environmentalist, but I am an expert when it comes to empathy you know, and actively listen. And I think that that's the foundation for addressing issues, dealing with problems, is having those three things. Everything else can be learned. Right. Alice mentioned that yesterday. You've worked in a lot of capacities with other people. That's the foundation of a lot of the work that you've done in your life, not just political work, but the jobs that you go to. I feel like the lack of political experience criticism that is often leveraged from power towards less power is really cheap and ineffective because if you do work, if you do work in the world and if you work with people, then you can learn parliamentary procedure. You can learn how to be an arbiter and an advocate on the city council, for example, without having to be a legal expert, having to be an expert in business. I wanted to bring things back to Alabama Power for a second because I was hoping you were headed there. When we talk about creating new green jobs, you mentioned training programs that would scoop up people that lose those fossil fuel jobs to go into a green industry. There's every possibility to create that transition from within so people don't have to lose their jobs from Alabama Power, for example, and then be picked up by another company. There's a lot of transitional stuff that can be done, and obviously that's not going to happen when Alabama Power is fighting independent solar rights. There's so much pushback against solar power when it comes to Alabama Power, which could not only take pressure off the power grid and allow citizens to contribute to the power supply of the state, but is green, is renewable, is going to be much better for people. If we're seeing that kind of pushback on solar power, than things like you know methane collection from the landfills, which is a fantastic idea, we're never going to get that institutional support for that. What that really takes, the way I see it, is for these advocates to be in these positions of power, like the city council, and then citizens to show up and support that. When you look at Parker, and I don't want to comment too much on that, out of knowledge of that issue, I don't want to, I'm going to use that just as an example. If someone is coming from a good place and faces that risk, that political risk from power, when that fight inevitably happens, you know what I mean? When push does come to shove, the citizens have a responsibility to back those people so that they can afford to fight for them. I totally agree with that. But also, too, is that if I come into any opposition, I would rather lose my political position and still maintain integrity than to stay with the status quo. And I end up selling out and or hurting my constituencies. 
I'm willing to go that far. Because again, this is not about, it's not about me. It's about my constituency. And if that means, you know, that I lose a political position, that's fine because I really don't need it. You've been out talking to people, even if they don't see through the specific lies, do you get the impression that people are believing more of the bullshit? Or do you think that there's a more general feeling among the people that you're talking to that, yeah, something's wrong and we're not being served? Do you think that's where the focus is? Yes, uh, you're absolutely correct. I, I think people are beginning to see just how underserved they are. And then you have some people, you know, they're saying, you know, I can't believe I've been lied to, you know, for so long. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, when we talk about neighborhood revitalization, Wolfen would do all these videos, you know, saying this is, we're tearing down houses, you know, and stuff. And I'm like, dude, that is not what neighborhood revitalization is. And I, I was talking to one uh, person on the campaign trail. And this individual said, well, well, I'd rather see a vacant lot than a dilapidated home. And I looked at the individual and I said, don't you know that an empty lot brings death to your community? And they was like, well, what do you mean? So I explained in a psychological sense, when you're not seeing growth in your communities, when you see empty lots, overgrown lots, dilapidated homes, messed up streets, you're living in a food desert, people are down and depressed. Uh, people are angry. People are voiceless and helpless. You know, and they thought, I thought I can go to the mayor and say what was wrong. I thought I can go to my counselor representative and say well, what's wrong. You know, but all they tell me that is it's my fault. You know, how is it my fault when I don't have access to the resources and the power and the influence to get things done? If that was the case, then I should be mayor or city council. This is what people are feeling right now. And after explaining that, their response was, well, you know what? I never really thought about it that way. So to revive me to bring something to life or bring something back to life. When you put up new homes and have new infrastructure, when you bring in businesses in, even when you are empowering people, that lifts them out of depression. You know, there's a spring in their step, a renewal of life. You know, they're happy because they're at a place of success because opportunity knocked on their door thanks to advocating on behalf of the people. They saw that opportunity and they opened up the door because as counselors, we provide that voice for them to empower them to stand, you know, with us because there are power in numbers. But how can you do that you know, when you look around and your communities look like crap, and then in an election year, your mayor and city council, you know, want to give us crumbs to have an illusion or a blind reality that I am doing something when really you're not. And so when we talk about neighborhood revitalization, that's the kind of conversation, you know, I'm having with these folks. It's thought provoking. It gets people talking. They ask questions. They're inquiring, well, well, what do you mean? Because I bring this fresh perspective to them in a way that is thought-provoking. And at the end, I never really thought about it that way. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. 
Because a lot of times, you know, people don't know because our government is not telling us what we need to know. They're giving us an illusion that everything is okay and that you don't need to know everything. And in actuality, they say that we don't deserve anything, but I'm paying my tax dollars. Do you want to talk about the 10-point plan to address poverty and crime? That seems like a good place to go next. Absolutely. So what what I discovered in my research, especially into policing and talking with residents, gun violence is deeper than we realize. They said, well, uh, you have one Black person killing another Black person. And the first thing we got access to that is why. Another example is that we have instances where domestic violence or domestic dispute had ended up in someone being shot or killed. And then in other cases, we have, you know, an armed robbery and someone end up dead. So we have to ask ourselves, why are these people doing that? The root cause of crime is very complex. There are many areas to consider when we're dealing with crime. For starters, mental health, poverty, education, a lack of opportunity, hyper-policing, hyper-surveillance and over-policing, criminalization of the poor, recidivism, where people end up in our prisons, they come out worse than what they were before they enter. There's no rehabilitation that goes on in these prisons. As a result, we have recidivism. For one thing, we have to completely dismantle our police department. Because let me tell you, and some people are going to say otherwise, but we have a policing problem in the city of Birmingham. And it's not getting better when you have some of your own officers that are involved in the wrong side of the law. But they want to hold the citizens accountable. You know, and I'm saying, how can you hold the citizens accountable and uphold the law when you're breaking the law yourself? What can you tell me? So they're not even holding each other accountable within the ranks of their own department. That's number one. Number two, there is a broken relationship between law enforcement and the people because they are not out here in these streets. They're not engaging the public. Every time I see them, they're riding around their cars or they're sitting in the parking lots, running in the air conditioner and using up gas. This is our taxpayers' dollars at work here. And they're not being very efficient. Number three, in the last two uh, fiscal year budgets, we discovered that the city council continues to flow money into a broken system that involves, I mean, hyper-surveillance and over-policing people of color, the poor and the homeless. They have the real-time crime center, the shot spotters, the surveillance cameras, all of this supposed to cut down on crime. Well, guess what happened? Birmingham has experienced a record number of homicides in 25 years, but yet they have a budget of $100 million plus, and we still have a record number of homicides in the city of Birmingham. There is an alternative. We have to completely dismantle our police department. The city council has the power to do that under uh, Article 8, 
Section 8.03 of the Mayor Council Act, which gives the mayor and the city council the power to investigate any department or agency or any official within the city of Birmingham for the purpose of inquiry and investigation. It's kind of like when the folks go before Congress, you know, and they have to give an account of what happened. Like, for example, the insurrection commission that was formed in the context of this part of the conversation to dismantle means to break apart, dissect. I know defund the police bafflingly is a very unpopular talking point strategy across the board. I don't fully understand that. And I think it's because people don't understand exactly what that means. Right. You know, in dismantling, you're going deep into police operations. What operations is working and what operations is not working. It also involves research and investigation. And from that point, we need to put policies and resources into place to revamp those areas that have been proven to be ineffective. For example, there needs to be a higher standard of accountability and a higher standard of training, you know, some kind of degree in law enforcement. They have to go through a psychiatric evaluation, pass a physical exam, a mental exam. They have to go through a knowledge test. They had to go to an extensive background check. Furthermore, there needs to be policies in place that will hold the police department accountable. You probably uh, noticed uh, probably last month that Mayor Randall Whiffin created a five-member citizen police review board of five people that he chose himself. That is not part of, you know, what I would like to see. We do need a citizen police review board but it needs to be independent of the city. That way there would be little to no influence from the mayor and city council. If you have the mayor and city council to appoint them, then we might not get the representation from the city that we're looking for. And that they would be the body that would enforce those policies and investigate any corruption or misconduct that is happening in the police department. Now, presently, you have this five-member review board that has to report to the chief of police. Everybody from the chief on down would be subject to the same high standards of accountability as anybody else. I think by doing that, we can ensure a stronger, a better police department that will bridge the gap between law enforcement and the people. And we will have a true sense of safety and security. Another thing I want to point out is, is that there has been scientific methods of policing that brings down the burdens that police officers have to go through. They take causes someone's in mental distress or domestic disputes. Police officers are not trained to do that. You have professionals, therapists, you have counselors psychiatrists, you have social workers, you have mental health professionals. Those operations should not exist in the police department. And there is funding for that as well. That funding needs to be taken away from them in that sense and give it to grassroots organizations who are on the ground dealing with those issues I just mentioned. Among those alternate police methods, probably sure you heard of the cure violence model. The whole objective is to interrupt and intervene before 
something escalate. And this is something that you have to go through months of rigorous training because that involves some sort of psychology. And then you have what is called community police. Sometimes it's called neighborhood watch, but I think the new term sounds better, community policing. It is the community that's keeping people safe and they're looking out for one another. It's a step further than just having a neighborhood watch. This doesn't necessarily have to involve the police unless you, you know, have an instance of a violent crime that's about to take place. Then there should be some kind of interaction with them. Another one is called problem-solving policing. What that means is that you have people skilled in problem-solving and that they will work with the police on the civilian side to investigate crime in such a way that we can see a lot of the cold cases being solved. So those are some of the methods that can be used. These policing methods cause less to operate than some policing budgets. And once we institute that, that's going to cut the policing budget down. But at the same time, you have the community involved in public safety. It's the citizens and the police, they're working together. And everybody's going to have their specific roles you know, that they're going to play. Even when it comes to traffic violations, there should be specialized traffic officers, unarmed, that deals with only traffic-related issue. I don't think the police should be involved in that because they're dealing with enough stress dealing with major crimes. You know, burglary, theft, murder, crimes of property is on the lower end of the spectrum. And so that's taking away resources from the police department. So if you have an alternative policing method in place to handle those things, you know, that means that the, the police department can handle the more serious crimes. And that a lot of the murders that have been unsolved can actually be solved and these families can finally find closure. And then finally, in that plan, we have to address the root cause of crime, poverty, mental health and substance abuse, education, opportunity, economic development. If you roll all of those things together, then people will be active, they will be productive. And that they will not have time to commit these crimes because they're active and they're productive. I think on a national level, 40% of homicides are unsolved. It's something like 65 or 70% for sexual assault, which is very bad. I don't have related statistics for Birmingham, but it, I think it is worth considering the efficiency of the police department and actually doing the job that they're doing when you're looking at you know, millions of dollars of funding going in additionally to a, an already fairly high police budget that is not incredibly transparent. I think it's worth noting how effective that is on its face. I'm going to plug those statistics right here just for future consideration. Bing. These stats are from crime.alabama.gov. From about 25,000 crimes in 2019, it's 25,271. Larceny was 60%. Assault and burglary, 17% each. Motor vehicle theft, 10%. Rape, and I must emphasize that is reported rape, 1%. Robbery, 4%. Drug offenses, I believe, are separate, and I'm not sure if domestic violence falls under assault. Homicide makes up a total of 0.49% of crime in Birmingham in 2019. In 2020, there were 105 unjustified homicides. 
62 exited 2020 unsolved. That's 59% of homicides in 2020 that were not solved. You can pretty much flip a coin on whether or not justice will be found. In a December press conference, Chief Smith and Mayor Woodfin blamed witnesses for not being cooperative. From Birmingham Watch, quote, Overall, violent crime in Birmingham has dropped in almost every major category, Smith added. Rape cases have dropped by 45%, robberies by 37%, property crime by 26%, and violent crime overall by 20%. But the city's murder rate has spiked by 12%. According to FBI crime statistics as of 2017, on a national level, 39% of murders go unsolved, and f***ing 65% of the reported sexual assaults go unsolved. Again from Birmingham Watch, Police technology was a point of public controversy in 2020, particularly with the city's decision to buy a suite of software with facial recognition capabilities. Woodfin has maintained that the city does not use facial recognition technology and cannot without approval from the city council. Uh, Unquote. This is a false statement. This is a lie from Randall Woodfin. There is technology that has been approved by the city council and going into play as we speak that collects facial recognition data from body cams and other sources. To the best of my knowledge, the owner of that facial recognition data to do with what they please is the owner of the cameras currently on polls all around the city, Alabama Power. I'll close this footnote with a quote from Randall at that press conference cited in the same article. Woodfin acknowledged that controversy in Wednesday's press conference, but warned that lack of public cooperation might make more police tech necessary. Quote, if we don't have witnesses to come forward, then our only other option is more technology, he said. As a community, we can't have it both ways. Back to you, Jackie and Keith. Maybe we'll see more of this on a future Randy Watch episode. When we got to the 62 mark of homicides in the city of Birmingham, only 22 of those murders have been solved, which means that you have 40 unsolved murders. And that's of early July the homicide rate is continuing to rise. Right. I don't see that being part of the conversation really at all, especially from the mayor's office and from the city government. It's all about how do we stop the homicides? We get the guns, and that's kind of it, which just involves heavier policing, heavier traffic stops or roadblocks or whatever. They definitely have been proven ineffective. The, The gun buybacks, the sweeps, the checkpoints, they brag about taking hundreds of guns off the street, but how can you justify that when you have the highest murder rate in 25 years? Their policies, even in this country, relating to gun violence is severely weak. Here in the city of Birmingham, where you had a task force that was uh, started sometime last year, had instituted a number of progressive you know, ideas, including uh, some that came from Eight Can't Wait, which you can find on the Office of Peace and Policy website for the city of Birmingham, which has not been implemented with the exception of recent announcement of Mayor Woodfin saying that no not warrants have been banned. But as far as aggressive policies to address gun violence is little to non-existent. And the city council is going right along with them. As a matter of fact, and I have to point this out, that I was at a city council uh, meeting one day in April when we had 15 days of nonstop violence in the city of Birmingham. The incumbent city councilor for District 6, Crystal Smitherman, was on the dais, and she was begging the mayor, I got a crime problem in my district. I need help. But the problem is, is was that 
Whiffin doesn't have a plan and neither does Smithem. And everybody's going to fall in the ditch and that the problem is not going to get solved. That's what happened. Was there public input at that meeting or was that not allowed that day? No, there was no public input. Sure. That all sounds pretty typical. And I'll, I'll just reemphasize that Woodfin said it himself. We don't have a crime problem. We have a poverty problem. And then promptly ignored all of the poverty alleviation solutions presented by his transition team before badmouthing all of them in the press. I do want to add that I have served on Woodfin's transition team in the social justice department. I have been involved in many of the issues relating to crime and social justice and was a heavy contributor to that. I feel that it was a slap in the face, put in hours of this work, and none of what we recommended, you know, was implemented. You had to estimate how much of the total recommendations of that transition team were followed, or let's say followed through on. Less than 5%. And that's because you had groups like People's Budget, Birmingham Coalition, for the past two years, really made an impact in the city of Birmingham as far as holding elected officials accountable and presenting a people's budget, which it says that you pay taxes in the city, your needs should be prioritized among anything else that goes in this city. Very proud to be a part of that. I feel that we have made an impact as far as transparency and awareness is concerned, even though we got shot down. We still made our presence known. But now we have to take it a step further and say, okay, we're tired of dealing with them. Let's vote them out and bring in leadership that not only say that they're progressive and grassroots, but we can see the fruit behind it. Because let's face it, you know, whiff and talk a good game. And it was so believable that we were sucked in like a vacuum. And then once the smoke clears, he did a 180 on us. And I have to say this for the record. When I find out about this, I cried. I literally cried like a baby. I was bawling and boohooing. And that has never happened, you know, to me before. Normally when that happens, it's, it's you know, like a tragic event that happened in my own personal life, like a death in the family, you know, or I fall into a depression. But I never wept like that for a city and its people. And that's one of the reasons why I'm running. 